This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to ifreakshow.com slash codeschool. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 83 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Pete Hodgson. Hello from Damp, San Francisco. Alondo Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. James Zuber. Hello from dry Minneapolis. Andrew Madsen. Hi from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Renee Cachot. Did I say that right? That's right, from freezing cold Austin, Texas. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure, I'd love to. So I'm an iOS architect here in Austin, Texas at a company called Mitchell Mobile. Ever since the iPhone came out, I've been really interested in iOS, learning Objective-C and kind of getting my hands uh, dirty with all the versions of iOS that Apple likes to release over and over and over again. Yeah, and just passionate about technology. Cool. So the topic for today is, is Swift ready for prime time? The short answer to that question is, I think, yes. But there's obviously a lot more to that than a yes or no answer. Okay, we're done here. Great show. All right. (laughs) You said, yes, we're done. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) But not quite, huh? What is the nuance then to the conversation? So the thing is, you know, I built a couple of apps in Swift already, and it's doable. You can build a full iOS app, ship it to the App Store, written completely in Swift. The questions are more about, do you have the time to go through the learning curve? And do you have the time to struggle with Xcode and some of the pieces that aren't quite baked yet? There's a lot of pieces with the compiler and the IDE that aren't quite finished yet. And so you have to really think about, do I have the time to spend on this? So so, so is it really a question points? of tooling then? or? Yeah, it's really a tooling thing because you know the language is there. It interops really well with Objective-C you're able to use all the same patterns that you use normally. It's a little weird, though, when you're doing things like target action and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, it's a tooling thing. It's it, The tools get you there. But you know, when you're doing Objective-C, there's all these nice things that Xcode does for you automatically that you know aren't quite there uh, yet. One of my biggest pet peeves, honestly, is just line formatting. Every time I, I indent a line over, it's in Swift, it just it doesn't do anything. It just basically indents you all the way to the left-hand side is really annoying. Is that supposed to be the standard kind of swift way of doing line formatting? Or is it is it just that Xcode is crappy? I just think they haven't built that in yet. I mean, that goes line in line with the fact that Xcode refactoring is it doesn't support Swift yet. You can't do refactoring with Swift. So all the refactoring tools, you know, like renaming classes and stuff that you that you don't really think about, that you just do day to day, you know, when you find that those tools aren't there, you can appreciate them a lot more, I guess. I would argue that Xcode doesn't really support refactoring in Objective-C yet. That, 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 that is true. That is true. Yeah. So that's cool. I'm, I'm actually, you, I think you might be the first person I've spoken to that actually uses the rename class and stuff like that. Um, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty handy for, for quick, yeah. quick changes and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. Well, it finally works. It took a long time before it would detect changes in the storyboard. Or oh, I just gave right. up on it a long time ago. I, maybe I should revisit the refactoring and see if it works now. It's it, it's still it, not great, but yeah, I was gonna say it's better, but I still but it, 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 it works enough to be useful. It's not as time. good as app code for sure. It's exactly. it's not there yet. Renee, something I wanted to ask 
some friends and I were discussing Swift and especially the state of the tools a couple days ago. And I haven't done a lot of Swift. I haven't done any serious Swift programming for a real app yet. But one complaint somebody brought up was that the debugger does some kind of interesting things when you're trying to debug Swift. And he's he's had quite a bit of trouble with that. Have you seen that? Or is does the debugger seem like it works pretty well for Swift? Well, yeah, there are a lot of interesting things when using a debugger. The main thing is when you're debugging something in Swift, the LDB prompt is in Swift itself. And so whenever you're debugging things that are in Objective-C, which is basically most of your code because all the Apple frameworks are still written in Objective-C, when you're debugging through that, the bridge isn't quite clean. So there's actually something you can do. I don't know the command off the top of my hand, but there's a way that you can tell LDB to switch over to Objective-C. So it's a matter of just, it's a nuance and thinking, okay, am I in Objective-C or am I in Swift? And then, you know, do it, changing the debugger to kind of, you know, have a prettier output. It's an output thing. It's, it's not very pretty. And then you also get really weird things when you have protocol variables and constants because of the way that the compiler optimizes, you know, the virtualization, devirtualization stuff. Like it gets really icky. It's not very clear. But again, there's commands to get you through that. But again, it's not super straightforward. I mean, it, it really, what I recommend is, is watching the WWDC session on debugging with Swift. I watch that over and over again, and I learn something new every time. Cool. I didn't know about that ability to switch over to Objective-C mode. We'll have to see if we can look that up yeah, and put it in the show notes. super helpful. Super, super helpful. Uh, going in a little different direction, speaking of, of this whole debate about whether Swift's really ready for prime time, I think one of the important things to consider is what are the advantages of using Swift right now? It's pretty easy to come up with some disadvantages like the learning curve and the tools are a little half-baked, but I think the discussion is more interesting when you know what the advantages are. So I'm curious to know what advantages you think you're getting out of using Swift right now. Uh, we kind of know the theoretical advantages, yep. but what are you seeing yep. in real use? So I've been doing pure Swift for the last four months now to the point where my Objective-C is getting a little rusty, which is scary. But the benefits that I see is once you do the learning curve and once you kind of know how to, how to work your way around some weird Xcode things, Honestly, it's sped up my development time twofold. I can write apps twice as fast as I could before. And it's not one big thing that I could pinpoint that say, oh, this is why. It's more of a lot of little things. A lot of little things that in Objective-C you have to take care of, like having header files and your imports and all that fun stuff. All these little things that you don't have to do in Swift kind of add up and really help speed up your development process. So that, that's what I would say is the number one benefit. I think people have talked about classes of bugs that Swift should make much harder to introduce accidentally. Have you seen that kind of a benefit? I mean, there are things like in Objective-C, you can message nil and it just silently fails, and Swift doesn't let you do that, or at least you know, that's kind of the whole optional thing. But have you have you done enough to notice whether your code seems less buggy by default? I haven't really noticed it, but I know that it, it does protect for a lot of really lower level kind of bugs like buffer overruns and stuff with like uh, typecasting and stuff that, you know, Swift just won't let you do. If anything, I'll say that one thing I really like about Swift is that the best practices that uh, Apple advocates for, for Objective-C, are basically encoded into the compiler to the point where your code won't compile if you don't follow the best practices. And they've done that in lots of different places. For example, with the initializer, there's a lot of rules as to how initializers work. And that's just kind of following the best practices that, that were always there in Objective-C, but that you could always, you know, not follow. Have you noticed it's changed, using Swift versus Objective-C has kind of changed this, the, the style of programming? But, I mean, I, kind of, I guess I'm getting towards the whole kind of functional aspect or the feel is, it's a different, I feel like idiomatic Swift is going to look different from idiomatic Objective-C. Yep, it does feel very different. And it really depends whether you're interfacing with existing Cocoa Touch frameworks or if you're right. doing something off to the side that's pure Swift. And those two things feel very different because as soon as you start touching frameworks, you're kind of having to opt into the Objective-C interop and you're having to do some weird things to make your Swift look a little bit more like Objective-C versus when you're in a pure Swift file in class, you basically can do whatever you want. And that does feel very different. That's um, interesting. Do you find yourself like trying to push, like set up kind of adapters or like kind of stuff that bridges between those worlds so you don't have to deal with the Objective-C stuff as much? Not so much, and mainly because I've been doing pure Swift. I've talked to other people that have done kind of a mixed language project, and those guys are definitely doing a lot of adapters because 
they have situations where some legacy Objective-C code is now calling into your Swift code. And, you know, when you're doing that, there's all these Swift language features that Objective-C just doesn't even know about, like tuples and things like that. And so you, if you have like a method returning a tuple, you know, you can't call that from Objective-C. So a lot of, I know a lot of people are putting a, kind of a bridge between the two languages to kind of translate. Returning a tuple means, okay, return this, you know, object or something like that. Gotcha. And I, I guess that, that would factor into the decision of like when is, I guess, you know, the, the, the Swift ready for prime time thing in the context of someone's project. If they've got this huge existing application, it's going to be, they're going to be paying quite a lot of tax initially, I suppose, to, to set up all of that stuff before they, maybe before they start seeing the benefit of the productivity benefits of using Swift more and more. But you brought up one example about like a tuple of something that wouldn't exist in Objective-C. So if you've got the Objective, your Swift world code and your Objective-C world code, you know, if interop's a priority, you know, your interfaces, you just want to design that they're returning things that Objective-C would understand. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and so honestly, the, the best way to do it is just to not return something like a tuple. Um, that's the easiest way because that way you can directly annotate your stuff as at Objective-C, making it visible to Objective-C. But if you really, really want to do all the cool, fancy Swift stuff, then yeah, you know, you could do a bridge. But there's a lot of work that you have to do, right? Because if you're returning a tuple, then I have to turn that into an Objective-C object or a struct or something so that I can pass it back to my Objective-C interface. I guess along the same lines, one of the things that I'm... This is really interesting to me to talk to someone who's been kind of in the trenches using this stuff. Like the impedance mismatch that seems like is going to be the biggest thing with using Objective-C APIs from Swift is the whole optional thing, right? Because all those Objective-C APIs are, are designed around the idea of things being nil, and obviously that's not the case for Swift. So my assumption has been, like, and this is all kind of theoretical, so I, I want to find out how far off I am. My assumption has been that it's going to be super painful messing around with that, all of that optional wrapping stuff up in optionals and unwrapping it in optionals at that boundary where you're talking to an Objective-C API. But once you've, you've done that wrapping and unwrapping, everything behind that that's in pure Swift should flow a lot better than in the old Objective-C world. Is that roughly how it feels or, or do you find yourself still having to mess around a bunch with boxing and unboxing things even when you're not using uh, like a legacy API? So back when I was learning Swift, I was doing a lot of boxing and unboxing and the more comfortable I get with Swift, the less I've been doing optionals uh, when I don't need to. And then, well, the imp- impedance mismatch, one of the nice things, it does get cleaner once you come over to Swift, but even better, you know, everything in Objective-C gets brought over as what's called an implicitly unwrapped optional, which if you audit your Objective-C code and can guarantee that you're actually passing a real instance back, because it's implicitly unwrapped, you don't even have to unbox it to use it. That's a very, you know, dangerous thing though, because if for some reason that Objective-C method does, you know, returns nil for some case, uh, and you're, you know, using the implicitly unwrapped optional straight out without unboxing it, you're gonna, you know, crash at runtime. But, I mean, this is what Apple's done, right? They've, they've gone through all the methods in Cocoa Touch and audited them and said, okay, can I guarantee whether or not this returns a value? And that's why uh, when Swift first came out, everything from Cocoa Touch was exclamation mark. It was implicitly unwrapped. And now you're starting to see most of the methods, you know, are either optionals with question mark, meaning it could return nil or just flat out a value, uh, non-optional. Unfortunately, Apple hasn't given us the ability to audit our methods and mark them as guaranteeing a returning value or not, but because they're implicitly unwrapped, we still have that ability to not have to unbox every single time. I guess I kind of assumed that that would be part of the work of kind of putting adapters or bridges or whatever in place is putting something around our old Objective-C code that just kind of says this stuff is explicitly going to return an optional thing. This thing is definitely going to return a value. It would be great if we could do that without having to write yep. code to do it but yep. presumably that's a, that's an option right it's just to you know write a little swift adapter doodad that makes it explicit whether the thing's going to return yep. yep you could do that for sure yeah i mean it's 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 interesting because here at work we're doing a what we call iswift which is basically a training for all of our ios engineers trying to kind of teach everybody swift and it's really interesting seeing the progression of you know learning across you know from objective c to, to swift guys and you know, one of the things that's very difficult is optionals is not something that just comes to mind very quickly. It's something that definitely I know that, I, you know, it took me a long time to kind of 
really grasp how you use them. I mean, the, the concept is not hard to, to grasp, but the actual usage of it gets kind of difficult. And so, you know, the whole implicitly interrupt optional has been an interesting topic because a lot of people ask me, you know, what is this whole question, you know, question mark, exclamation point thing? I just usually just switch one from the other until it, it compiles and I'm ready to go. <laughs> I kind of freak out a little bit and say, no, no, don't do that. But, you know, it's a learning curve. I mean, I guess that's the bottom line. Yeah, I def I remember like because Scala has a lot of these same kind of functionally things and lots of monadic things like optionals, and I definitely for me it was this really big like it was a learning curve, but it was a learning curve of a couple of steps. There was just the initial kind of like conceptual thing, which, like you say, it's like it's actually pretty straightforward, and then there's kind of like learning to use it. But I got like I don't know a second or third kind of kind of leveling up when I started to realize that it's not just about nullability for things. It's it's like you can use the same patterns that you use for optional. In You can think of lots of things of having that same property and you start kind of seeing this whole kind of monadic thing of like you're not, like you basically you start seeing lots of conditionals just disappear from your code and you just start treating things as data streaming through functions rather than this imperative kind of do this if that's true otherwise do this other thing so i don't know that's just my little i suspect that lots of people are going to have several kind of epiphany aha moments as they really start grokking all of this stuff in swift and it's and it's not just that initial learning thing it's like there's yep extra leveling up moments which is it's super cool when you kind of suddenly you know the scales fall from your eyes and you suddenly see that everything's a, a monad or yeah, for me the aha moment really was when i realized that optionals isn't the feature for swift to me the feature is non-optionals the fact that you can have something that's guaranteed to have a value yeah. that's really what's what i find is really interesting because it gives me a level of comfort when i'm programming and coding and knowing i'm going to have a value here and not having to worry about all the weird Things that can happen in Objective C. Yeah, I kind of I feel think of it the same way as a little bit the same way as going from like a language where you had to do error checking on every function to a language where you have exception handling. You suddenly realize that like if you deal with your exceptional cases at the boundaries of your code, like where things could be failing or not failing, then all of your code inside starts to become a lot cleaner because you no longer have to start worrying, you know, all the time like. You start. You, you have to stop being so defensive and being like, "Oh, I don't know. Maybe it could be nil. Maybe it couldn't be nil. I better check again and again and again." Like, so I get that same feeling of kind of it really frees you up to start focusing on the problem rather than thinking about all the boring plumbings of uh, of programming. Right, and I mean that reminds me of another thing that I really love about Swift is that is all the stuff I don't have to do, and just in terms of readability, it's just a lot easier to read. I find it way easier to read in Objective C just because there's a lot of like you said a lot of things that you don't even have to do. A lot of code just goes away. The, you know, the language takes care of a lot of things for you. Can you give us some examples of that? I know you talked a little bit about it earlier, but what areas yeah. in, in particular do you not have to do anything about? For starters, you don't even have to have a header, which is great. So, you know, you don't have to, every time you create a class, you don't have to worry about two files. And if I change the interface here, I have to change the interface there. That whole thing just got, goes away. You know, let me think for a second. What else just kind of melts away? I mean, the error checking, you know, with, when you have non-optionals, you know, you're stopping having to check all that stuff. With pattern matching and switch statements, super powerful. I mean, the fact that I can switch on expressions is is incredibly useful. It just makes a lot of things more straightforward. Well, one of my favorite ones is uh, you can uh, initialize a property at the declaration site in Swift, which you can't do in, in Objective-C, and that has cleaned up a lot of things for me. Been able to instantiate stuff just straight up in the declaration at the top, and there's just a lot of things that you couldn't do in Objective-C that you would that you wanted to do that now you can do. And that is a great feeling to be able to have more control over what you want to do. So what if I took the flip approach and ask the question, sort of coming from the other side, as someone who hasn't really uh, taken a deep dive into this, what am I giving up in this transition? Well, right now you're not giving up much because there's so much interop uh, between Swift and Objective-C, and you can always go into back into Objective-C when you need things that you could do before. But what you're losing in a pure, pure Swift environment is the dynamic language. You know, Swift is completely type safe. So there's a lot of things that you can do in Objective-C that you can't do in Swift. For example, swizzle methods. I can't do any swizzling in, in Swift because the compiler tends to optimize method calls inlining the function pointers. And so you're losing the whole rich Objective-C runtime that you can you know, do a lot of interesting things like, for example, when you're parsing JSON, you can 
you know, have some introspection on your model objects and say, okay, let me match up my property names with these JSON key names, and then let me pre-populate small. You can't do that. I mean, I, I tried doing that in Swift. There's no way because it's all type safe. And so you lose a lot of the dynamic nature of Objective-C. That brings up something I wanted to ask about, which is we know we can always still write stuff in Objective-C if, if we want to, at least right now, because of the good interoperability. I wonder if there are cases where you've found that it still actually just makes sense to write something in Objective-C. And the thing, the thing I'm kind of thinking about is the really low-level C APIs, so things like Core Audio or IOKit or you know, POSIX socket programming or something like that. From what little I've seen, it seems like Swift makes some of that stuff possibly more difficult than it was in Objective-C slash C. Have you run into that at all? I have run into that a little bit. There's two sides to that coin when talking to, to C from Swift. One of the pros is that a lot of the memory management gets done automatically for you. you know, Apple's also audited those methods and put some identifiers or uh, annotations that tell it whether it's, you know, plus one or, or not. And so you basically get ARC for C for C uh, calls. And so that removes all the C retain release stuff that you had to do if you were you know, going down to core graphics or you know, any of those C frameworks. That's the positive side. The negative side is, yeah, it gets really arcane when you have C API that's using things like function pointers. For example, I was one time I was trying to do uh, NS run loop and set up an, a run loop observer with a, a C function callback. Back when I was doing it, there was no way to do it. I don't know if that's the case anymore. I would be surprised if it has changed, but I wasn't able to do that. So there was, that was one, that was the one time that I was actually unable to do something because I was in Swift, uh, just flat out because the language didn't support it. But that's the only thing. I mean, you know, for the most part, it's been pretty delightful to use uh, C APIs in Swift. Yeah, so that that gets at what I was kind of thinking of. I, I'm thinking of core audio in particular, and you. There are a lot of core audio functions that take a a callback function, and it's a just a C function pointer. And I wondered if that was more difficult in Swift because it's it's super easy in Objective C, and you can even just quickly trampoline back into your real yeah. Objective C code and. Uh, yeah, it's definitely arcane. I mean, there's, you know, it comes to like the, they've wrapped the concept of a pointer in, in their own types with like NS mutable pointer and stuff like that. But it, it took me a little while to kind of really grasp what was going on, whether, you know, when I, if I was in Objective C or C, I would have been able to do it right away. I mean, so again, it's that, it's that tax that you pay that you, you don't know up front what you're going to hit. And, you know, I haven't done millions of apps. I haven't done super complicated apps. So I still don't know where other, taxes that I may have to pay. And so it's kind of like, you know, take your own risk uh, at your own risk. Well, and it, se- it seems to me that this is a case where the interoperability between Swift and Objective-C is probably actually a big advantage, not just for the fact that we need to interface with all these Objective-C Cocoa APIs, but I- I'm not sure I think there's anything wrong with writing small pieces of your app in Objective-C, even going forward, and then calling those from Swift. I've- I agree with that. I agree with that. And actually... I want to go back to that question of, you know, what makes sense to write in Objective-C. Well, anything that's dynamic, like, for example, that dynamic parser that does, you know, uh, introspection on Objective-C model objects, I, you know, I would still use Objective-C to build that because I don't want to have to build a Swift code generator that parses JSON and then outputs a bunch of Swift files that then then you bundle inside your app and compile. I don't like that. I'd, I'd rather just at runtime dynamically match up my JSON keys with my model object names, property names. And so... Things like that, I would just do Objective-C. And, and I think there's a lot of other use cases out there that make sense. And that's that's where, again, that's, you know, like you guys said, that's where the interop is a huge advantage, uh, that you have that option. So I have a question regarding more kind of the ecosystem around Swift. So, I mean, we have all of the ecosystem that's around Objective-C. Is there good documentation? Are there good Stack Overflow questions, et cetera, et cetera? around Swift yet, or are we still kind of waiting for this stuff to be written or asked or made? I would say at the very, very foundation level, there's great documentation from Apple. I mean, the Apple's done a great job of updating the Swift language programming guide, which is, I think, a huge feat because they've changed the language so much since the very beginning. And every time I go in there and I look at the revisions, it closely matches the, the diffs that I see in in the developer portal. And so they've done a really good job of keeping that up to date. And it's actually a very well-written piece of documentation. The only problem with that, though, is it's very detailed. And it's it's not like a, uh, a good learning tool. It's more like a reference where 
you want to learn a topic and you can do a deep dive. It's not one a kind of book that you'd want to read from cover to cover. So higher level things like Stack Overflow, I've been finding a lot of things. I really have. I mean, there's very few times where I type something into Google and I didn't find anything, which is really nice. And also where there's a lot of activity is the, the Apple developer forums. You know, found some weird use cases where, for example, this is this is another kind of caveat with with Swift is uh, if you're doing any kind of enterprise distribution, for some weird reason, Apple changed the way that enterprise identity certs get created to the point where if you have it, if you include Swift in your app and you try to code sign, or I guess when you try to open the app that was signed with an enterprise cert, the app just crashes unless you revoke your cert and create a new one, which is not what you want to do because then all your existing apps that are out there aren't going to work anymore. But it was a really arcane message. I put it into Google, didn't find anything, went to the app, Apple Develop Forms, found like four or five posts, and got my answer really quickly. So I've been finding a lot of answers out there, for sure. The other thing I'm wondering, have you released any apps written in Swift on the App Store? I haven't personally released anything. Um, I've released a bunch of stuff internally. My first Swift app was actually a Mac app for doing stuff with Jira for our engineers. And so you can do it for Mac apps too, I guess, is, is the bottom line there. But no, I haven't done anything in the App Store quite yet. The reason I'm asking is it seems like Apple tends to favor apps that use kind of the new cool thing that they're trying to get people to use. And so I'm wondering if your app is written in Swift, are you more likely to get accepted or get promoted within the App Store because you know, you're using the technology that they want you to use? I don't know. That's a very interesting question because... Unlike all the other kind of features, uh, it's not very user-facing. You know, it's not something that you can look at and know, oh, this is written in Swift, right? Mm-hmm. It's very invisible versus, you know, they want you to be, you know, using the accelerometer. They want you to use the camera. And every time they come up with new hardware, they really want you to, you know, for example, the watch, right? So all the apps that have watch extensions, they're going to get promoted, right? And be at the very top of the, the app store promotion list. But with Swift, I don't know. I, I have no idea. I wouldn't be surprised if they weren't because just because it was so transparent. Yeah, I'd think it's the same thing, right? Like I can't imagine the average iPhone or iPad or whatever user being like, oh, I want to get me a Swift powered app, you know, like Swift on the inside. I don't think people care. Oh, well, they, most people would have no idea what that even yeah. meant right. at all. Right. I mean, I think it just boils down to, you know, Swift is by nature a much safer language. So, the, the chances of the app crashing on you is, is less. Because if we think back to 2008 when, you know, the iPhone first came out, the first apps that were coming out in the App Store, they would crash a lot. I mean, it was really easy to crash an app back then. And with the introduction with Arc and now with Swift, you know, Apple's really trying to make it harder and harder for users to experience these poor experiences where, you know, the apps just crash and bail out on you. Yeah, and I think they've done a good job. I, I think a big part of the problem for actually for quite a long time was that you had all these people who were coming to iOS that were brand new and coming from platforms where some of those problems had already basically been solved. Um, I, I just remember knowing that an app was obviously written by somebody and it was their first time because there were crashes due to memory management bugs and you could trigger them super easily. So I'm really glad they've sort of removed that burden from people and you can be somebody who's getting started and write an app that's not going to have these dumb crashes that you wish you didn't have to know anything about. Yeah, well, that's that's another big thing about Swift is just how Apple's put a focus on being able to learn the language. I mean, uh, with the whole playground thing, you know, I find a lot of you know Java engineers learning Swift fairly quickly. Um, it's very similar. I mean, there's a lot of similar concepts like generics and stuff, but just being able to pull up a playground and just write code and see it execute immediately is just a huge advantage for learning the language. And I think it's going to really help get new engineers on board with the platform. Which you know will be interesting to see a year two from now how much the iOS community grows just because of Swift. So you think it lowers the learning curve in a significant way? I think so. I, I really do. Just being able to to execute code right away and not having to deal with you know uh, Xcode build and run and all that fun stuff. It, it really it's incredibly easy to teach someone how to program when they're seeing every step of the of execution running right as you're typing the code. So I wanted to go back a little bit to more of just the, the language itself. So one of the things you mentioned is that uh, a little bit earlier on is the difference between uh, Objective-C is kind of more of a dynamic, looser language. Swift has got like an, an actual type, well, sorry, and that's an unfair to Objective-C to say Swift has actually got a type system because Objective-C kind of does. Um, 
Have you seen, like yourself or other folks, the Mutual Mogul, who are, who are learning this, is that a big stumbling block, like trying to figure out how to kind of work with a type system that's a little bit more restrictive, or does it tend to just kind of get out of your way? Uh, no, I, I definitely think it's it's just because it's so different. It's such a different... The type system in, in Swift is something... Another thing that I really love about the language because it's very uniform, but it's very different than Objective-C. And so Objective-C engineers start learning Swift. There's some simple things that maybe don't come to mind immediately. Like, for example, you don't really think of instantiating an enumeration, right? That's, you're not really thinking in that term, but that's how you do it because everything in... Swift is a first class citizen type. Everything gets instantiated. Everything is basically kind of like an object. And so there are certain things that are stumbling blocks just because it's it's so different. But the nice thing, though, is because it's so uniform, once you get it, once you learn it, it kind of applies to everything else. Yeah. Richard, the guy who created Clojure, has this really cool talk called Simple Made Easy or Simple Versus Easy or something like that. And he talks about that, how like really powerful systems or really powerful languages are those that have like a few small concepts that fit together really well and that you can use these few small concepts to model a bunch of different things. So like that, the type system is a good, is a good example of that, I would say, where once you've learned it, you know how it works and, and it applies in lots of different ways. Like it applies for enumerations the same as it does for model objects in your code base versus Objective-C where there's all these kind of like little weird corner cases and special ways of doing things like, oh, there's a macro system from the C-sharp days. Oh, and there's also constants and, you know, like you have all these different ways of doing things. And so you have to learn all these different ways. I totally love this idea of a, a very simple language where maybe it's a bit harder to learn the ideas up front, but once you've learned them, you know it, and you can apply that same idea in lots of different contexts. Yeah, I mean, that perfectly characterizes kind of my experience with Swift so far. That, that describes it perfectly. It's kind of ironic as well, because I think in that talk, he's like digging at, at Scala, because Scala is just this ridiculous grab bag of 500 different language features versus Clojure, which is like just for emphases, basically. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's kind of funny because I think the language I hear Swift compared most frequently to is Scala, but I think definitely doesn't have the ridiculous amount of features that Scala does. So what are the characterizations that I heard for if you want to use Swift or Objective-C with a new project is what type of developer you are. Are you the type of person that instantly gets CocoaPods and has 10 going within an hour or you're the person that uses the Apple way of doing things. And if you're doing the Apple way of doing things, I heard you had an easier time, even this summer. But if you did a lot of CocoaPods, which might be you know, Objective-C libraries, like AF networking, something like that, you had a harder time. What type of apps are you having, having success with? What kind of apps in terms of like tooling for engineers or... Tooling, your, your approach. Are you doing a bunch of CocoaPods? Are you just sticking with the standard frameworks? Well, I, I am doing a lot of CocoaPods because I depend on a lot of libraries that are, you know, written in Objective-C. And at this point, you know, since Swift is so new, you know, all the Swift libraries, I just don't trust them 100% yet. I don't think that they've matured yet and haven't been adopted and put through their paces enough like the Objective-C library. So, yeah, I, I use CocoaPods for everything, even my pure Swift apps. And that's, I mean, again, that's where the, the interop is super helpful because I can bring in all those existing libraries and still write all my code in Swift. But, you know, when I need to call into stuff like networking, I can use AF networking just fine. You know, the, what's going to be interesting in the future when it comes to dependency management, for starters, Xcode does not support Swift in static libraries. And CocoaPods is, is very dependent on static libraries. I mean, that's what it does, right? It creates a bunch of static libraries that you link against. And so right now, as it stands, I can't write a Swift library and uh, distribute it with CocoaPods. And, you know, what, what Apple's response to that would be, well, that's why we enabled CocoaTouch frameworks this year. So for iOS 8 and above, you can actually do frameworks. And that bringing in a framework is so much easier. You don't have to go through all those build settings and search header paths and all that fun stuff. But the problem with frameworks is that because iOS 7 doesn't know how to decrypt them, you can't use them if you're supporting 7 and below. So it's 8 and above only, but it does support Swift. So that's, I think, Apple's preferred way of distributing Swift libraries is going to be through frameworks. I actually picked last week a project called Carthage that's sort of a counterpart to CocoaPods by Justin Spar Summers, one of the guys at GitHub, that instead of building static libraries and putting them in your project, it actually just knows how to pull an open source project and build a, a dynamic framework. I kind of see that as the future. and Well, I see it as a better approach than what CocoaPods does. And just a 
minor footnote is that frameworks have been supported on the Mac forever. So if you're writing a Mac app, that framework approach is quite viable. That's really exciting. I didn't. Re- I I remember you picking that, but I didn't. I probably wasn't paying attention, but I didn't realize how different the approach is. That having been someone who had to maintain like a library that people were linking into their apps, I'm very excited at the idea of having a real grown-up dependency management thing that doesn't include messing around and compiling everything yourself or compiling everything inside of your code base. You know, that's cool. We should have him on and uh, talk about that some more. Yeah, well, he would be he would be great anyway. But yeah, that w- that would be uh, an interesting thing to talk about. I've I haven't dug into actually using that, that yet. My goal right now is to get my open source projects working with it. It's supposed to be pretty easy, but I haven't even tried yet. So if I wanted to start a project in Swift, how would I get started? Do you just create a project the same way you normally would? And how does the workflow change other than that you don't have a, like the .h and .m files? Well, if, if you're doing a pure Swift app, it's actually very simple. When you create a new project in Xcode, it will actually ask you what language you want it in. Objective-C or Swift. And so it's just a drop-down and you select Swift and then you're off and running. Uh, there's some things that won't be there that you m- might be familiar with. Like there's no, you know, main.m. That's gone. Um, a lot of other things. Well, that's, that's the main thing that's gone. But other than that, you're ready to go. As, as long as you create a new project, select Swift and you'll have all your kind of baked in code, like the view controllers that come baked in with the, the templates, they'll all be in Swift and perfectly ready ready for you to use. Yeah, that that brings up something else that I don't think we touched on at all, but that is that Apple has also made it so that all the documentation for the existing frameworks, which are all written in Objective-C, and I think even the new frameworks are mostly, if not completely being written in Objective-C. Anyway, they've made it so the documentation viewer will show you, you know, like the Swift declaration for a method as well as the Objective-C method. And you can also view the headers for Objective-C stuff in the, you know, Objective-C headers that are part of the frameworks. You can view those in, I don't know what you'd call it, Swift mode. So you can see how, you know, you don't have to do this mental translation yourself. Um, the tools actually help you do that translation between the Objective-C APIs and the Swift APIs. Which is great because a lot of things get brought in in a different way. Things like you have an argument that's typed as ID. Well, that gets translated into any object. You know, block syntax to closure syntax. All these things that would be really hard for you to do in your head. Yeah, I mean, it's super helpful to be able to see the Swift version of those header files. I've heard people say that you can, if you want to, you can write an app in Swift that works exactly like the Objective-C app you would write. And I think what they mean is that you don't have to use all of these kind of new Swift-specific features. I think you kind of lose out on some of the benefits of Swift, but it does mean that there's a much smaller learning curve than there would be. I mean, you're still using the same frameworks and the same app architecture that we're all used to as iOS developers. I, I completely agree. And in the course that, that I'm teaching here at Mutual Mobile, I didn't introduce tuples. I didn't introduce generics. We, we started basically, the goal was how can we get our engineers building an entire Swift app as quickly as possible? And the way to do that was to just teach them what they needed to know. Things like optionals and interop and closures, but you know we didn't have to talk about pattern matching. We didn't have to talk about you know enumeration associated values. All these things that we didn't really need to touch upon, and they're able to build the entire app. Now, is it as nice and as 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 powerful as it could be if it was you know if those apps were written with you know all the Swift features? Of course not. But that's you know we have a lot of time to learn the language, and it's just it's a matter of kind of balancing out what you want to learn in the time that you have. One thing I wanted to touch on real quick was kind of on playgrounds because I feel as I talk to engineers, it's one of those things that you play around with when you first get Xcode for the first time and then you kind of forget about it. And I've used playgrounds all the time. And I think that the gotcha or I guess the aha moment I had was when I was building a collection view layout. And I thought, well, maybe I can just use playgrounds so that I can change the code and immediately see that my layout and how it's changing. And so what I ended up doing was I put a lot of, you know, most of the code that I was writing inside of a, of a framework so that I could then go into a playground and start calling into it. And it was one of those experiences that I was like, wow, like I really finally understood like the power behind playgrounds and I was able to see my layout change before my eyes immediately without having to build and run, without having to, you know, put it on a simulator or put it on a device. I was able to see all the bugs that I had. I was able to change all the inputs immediately and kind of see how that affected my layout. And it's just something that a tool that I think that not everyone thinks to use, but is super powerful. And definitely the faster you can shorten that feedback cycle, the faster you can learn and figure out what's going on. So it's definitely helpful. I've got a quick question. I don't know if, if 
you're uh, folks that do a lot of testing, but is, I'm guessing the testing story is is harder in terms of test automation. It is a little bit, let's say, less mature in Swift world than Objective C world. Is there is there good options out there, or is it kind of still the wild west? So for functional testing, it's it's basically the same thing because that's all right. based on the automation tags, uh, or sorry, all the uh, accessibility tags. But when it comes to unit testing, I haven't done a whole lot of that yet. That's kind of one of the my next things that I'm trying to learn. I have like this whole to-do list of things I need to learn, and it's getting longer every day because <laughs> Apple keeps releasing stuff. But you know, I haven't done too much of that. I know a couple of people here have and haven't said anything crazy. They haven't run into anything too difficult. But I would be interested to know how well XETest works with Swift and the performance stuff. Yeah, I, I know there are tools. There are like some the beginnings of test frameworks and stuff out there. But I, I haven't had a chance to play with it either, so I was just just wondering. Okay. Are there any other like really interesting or exciting open source tools or libraries in in the Swift space that people should be checking out if they're starting to use Swift? Like things that you couldn't even do with Objective C that. Now there's a nice library that does it for you in Swift. Honestly, I haven't found the need to use any third parties yet. And it's kind okay. of been a, a conscious choice because I wanted to learn the language. And so I don't, I don't want to take any kind of, sh- not that they're shortcuts, but, you know, I do want to like be very, you know, proficient in the language. And I feel the best way of doing that is just rolling your own everything to start. But yeah, I don't, I don't know of any, anything that I would recommend. I know, I mean, I know there, there's Alamo Fire, which is AF networking equivalent in Swift. And, uh, you know, mentioned Carthage for the distribution stuff, but other than that, I really haven't been exposed to much yet. That makes sense. Actually, um, you mentioning AF networking makes me think of something that I was planning to ask, but I haven't got around to. How is the interop with blocks? Clunky trying Seem- to do stuff with blocks? Seamless. Oh, it's absolutely cool. seamless, yeah. I haven't had zero problems with it. The one thing I like to tell people is that I no longer no longer have to go to uh, freaking blocksyntax.com because <laughs> <laughs> the closure syntax is just so uniform and so nice. It's not like, well, if it's an argument, it's this format. Or if it's a property, it's this format. It, that's gone. Like That's one of my favorite things, really, honestly. That's awesome. Yeah, no one is going to miss that syntax. Yeah. Uh, no, I was on that site two hours ago. The owner of that site's going to miss it. Do, do they have ads on it? I don't think so. It's just doing it for the love of the game. Unless they're invisible ads. Well, I was thinking Google ads or something. Subliminal. All right. Well, uh, any other questions before we go to the picks? Nope. Okay. Let's do picks then. Andrew, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got one real pick and one half pick because it's a repick. But my real pick is, well, it's kind of weird. It's a GitHub repo, but the real meat of the repo is actually just the readme. It was written by uh, Brad Larson and uh, Janie Clayton, and it's called a serial port example in Swift, but that's actually misleading because it's hardly even a serial port example at all, even the code that they posted. But really what it is is this readme, which is quite a long post about why they've decided to rewrite their entire app in Swift, and they have a big old Mac app that does some pretty sophisticated stuff and talks to hardware over, over a serial port. He and she are essentially just going through the reasons why Swift is better for them, and it sort of focuses on the the classes of bugs that Swift eliminates that are quite a problem in Objective C. They they went through and actually audited the source of their bugs throughout like the last five years, and then determined that a, a pretty big percentage of those just would not have happened in Swift. So it's pretty interesting. My second pick is something I've picked before, but it's kind of relevant to today's discussion, so I wanted to pick it again. And it's Playgrounds in Objective-C. So I'm excited about Swift, but I'm still an Objective-C fan, and I'm also just impressed with this project that this guy came up with. He wrote an implementation of Playgrounds that work in Xcode with Objective-C instead of Swift. So that's KZ Playground. Those are my picks. Nice. Andrew, you stole my, you stole my pick. Sorry. The, the post from the, the robotics, the rewrite. So that great. Plus one, definitely. All right, James, what are your picks? So actually, oh, they did a blog post about it. They'll, I'll put a link for the blog post where they talked about it. That's what I was going to do the pick for. So that's my plus one pick. My second pick is I don't go to see very many movies, about one a year, but I went last week and I saw a documentary on Antarctica, more specifically the type of people that live there year-round. I thought it was just a bunch of scientists doing science-type stuff, but, you know, different type of people keep the thing running. Yeah. So it's called Antarctica, and I was interested. So if you go see one movie a year, I wouldn't say 
this would be one you have to see, but it's definitely entertaining if you like to do that type of stuff. So I, I, I actually thought you were going to be picking a different movie, which is a, a Werner Herzog movie called Encounters at the End of the World. But it sounds like your movie's different, but they have the same subject. And I would recommend the Werner Herzog one. He just went to Antarctica and kind of investigated the people that live there. Oh, very nice. Very common topic, apparently. It's a pick-off. That's right. Who's got the third Antarctic pick? I'm Googling furiously. I just have to ask, if the world's round, then how, how is there an end of the world? Well, there's not, but I have a feeling Antarctica does feel like the end of the world when you're there. It just seems so appropriate for Werner Herzog, too. All right, Alondo, what are your picks? I have two picks. Uh, one is a service, a backend is a service called Firebase that we've started using at work and also will be using for another project as well. Basically wraps up a database and API and, auth- and authentication into a single service. Um, there are several libraries you can use against it, whether you're developing for uh, iOS or mobile in general, web or um, Android. There are some additional um, APIs available that are sort of unofficial third parties for Ruby and the like. Um, it seems to be performing really well for us for a feature that we're implementing. And so I encourage people to give it a try, see if you like it. Um, my second pick is actually something I haven't picked in a long time, which is a beer. And that is, I was introduced to it at last company meeting from New Belgium Brewery. It's called the 1554. It's a black lager. And it is really, really good. So those are my two picks. All right. Pete, what are your picks? Last one on that beer. It's a good one. I don't like New Belgium that much, but I like that beer. My picks this week. This one is going to be a little bit late by the time this podcast comes out, but I'm going to pick it anyway. There's this project called 24 Pull Requests at 24PullRequests.com, and the idea is it's like a advent calendar, but instead of eating chocolate, you are contributing to the open source projects that you use and love every day. So, yeah, it's just a little community idea of trying to get people to give back to these projects and get people started with contributing to open source. It's surprising how easy it is to do once you try. So that's 24 pull requests. Um, also, I'm related to Objective-C development. I've been doing quite a lot of devops stuff in the last few days. And two tools which I've been using, which I'm really, really into, are Ansible and Terraform. So Ansible is kind of, a, I guess, a competitor to Chef or Puppet. But I think it's a really good competitor. I would reach for this tool over Chef or Puppet any day of the week now that I've tried it. And Terraform is uh, this crazy, crazy powerful tool which will stand up infrastructure for you in the cloud very, very easily. So I've literally spent the last couple of days like typing in a one-line command and having EC2 instances stand up and elastic load balancing groups and security groups and deploying code onto them. And it's very cool. I feel like I'm the master of the universe when I play with these tools. Uh, so yeah, Ansible and Terraform. And then my last pick, it's getting close to Christmas time, everybody, or the holiday season. And uh, you're trying to think of what presents you want to ask for or what presents you want to give to your loved one. I highly recommend the practice of brewing your own beer. And so I think a really great present to give someone who you love very much is a beginner kind of brew kit and support your local independent homebrew place rather than going to buy it from one of those big chains. And uh, I'm going to link, uh, add to the show notes, a link to a really cool online resource. It's an online book called How to Brew, highly recommended by uh, a luminary in the field. So there you go. Those are my picks. Happy, happy holidays. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks. The first one is a video by John Sonmez, and it shows how he organizes his week. I've kind of adopted that. I've tweaked it a few different ways to make it work better for me, but I'm really enjoying it, and it's helping me reach my goals. So I'm going to pick that. And then uh, related to Pete's pick about Christmas, honestly, just think about things that you can do to help other people. I know that a lot of people, you know, aren't Christian or celebrate another holiday. But, you know, just just take the moment, take the opportunity, you know, whether you believe in Jesus or believe in something else or don't believe in any of any of those things, you know, to find opportunities to be grateful for what you have and to help other folks. And Renee, what are your picks? Well, I have three different picks. They're very different. First one is an app that I've been using for a long time, but it's something that helps me every day being productive. And that's the Things app. Uh, I think uh, Apple had it free last week, but I have the Mac app and the the iPhone app and the iPad app, and it does a really, really good job of synchronizing your your to-dos across all your different devices. And one thing I'm really liking about their implementation is that they're doing a lot of extensions. So you can do things like you're in Safari on the Mac, and you can quickly create to-dos just straight from Safari. Super, super handy. That's things. The second one I have is a WWDC video that I've watched maybe 30 or 40 times because it's so good, and I always like recommending it. 
It's from WWDC 2012. And if you're really into like core animation and all the UI graphic stuff, I highly recommend the session called iOS App Performance Graphics and Animations. Highly recommend it. Uh, watch it over and over again. You'll learn something new every time. The last one is a TV show that I watched during the holidays here in Thanksgiving called Fargo, which is really, really good. If you enjoyed the movie, you're going to really enjoy the series. I couldn't stop watching it. And it's by FX, and you can watch it on uh, iTunes. Those are my three picks. Very cool. Well, thanks for hey. coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks so much, so much for having me. Lots of fun. And I uh, can't wait to talk to you guys soon. Oh, I have one final pick that I forgot, but after you mentioned your thing, the Arrow of Code is coming up this week, the week this thing goes live, and it's a thing for kids to learn how to code using kind of a stretch type thing. So I worked with some kids earlier this week, and they all got to do a Flappy Birds type clone game, and they did it within an hour. So it's a great opportunity to get in touch with some kids you know and get them writing code. So check it out, the Arrow of Code. It's nice. coming December 8th. All right. Well, I think that's it. So we'll wrap up and we'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. 